You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Priscilla Alabi, um, she, her. I'm a journalist, storyteller, podcast maker. I've been attending Four Friends sporadically since 2018, but committed to coming regularly in January 2020. So we're at the end of the series, like Josh said, and um, if you missed anything, it's online, Facebook, YouTube. Um, you can go back and, and listen and watch. Um, so a few weeks ago, I was on the phone with a dear friend of mine, his name is Elon, he's Jewish. Um, he, he has family who live in Israel and um, two of his cousins were actually kidnapped by Hamas on October 7th, um, along with roughly 240 other people. Um, and 1,200 people were killed in that attack. Um, and um, Elon's family, between the Israeli Defense Forces bombing the tunnels and bombing Gaza and killing about 20,000 Palestinians, um, it's hard for Elon's family to know for sure if his cousins are still alive or if they're dead. Um, there are no words to describe that level of despair. Um, and it, when, I, when he told me that, I was really struck by, um, I just had to give me deep pause, right? Because we all have this conception of what we think is going on over there. Um, so, that said, I'd like to offer a content warning. I'm gonna talk about Israel-Palestine, and some of what I'm gonna to say today has to do with discrimination and intergenerational trauma, um, but I don't want you to shut down at all. I want you to um, be open and engaged, and so I'm gonna pray, um, as my mom <laughs> warned me this morning. Um, <laughs> my mom's here. Um, she, she told me to, um, to pray, so I'm gonna pray. pray. Um, so thank you, Lord, for this moment, this opportunity. Uh, God, I just pray that you um, help me be brave. You help me say only what you need me to say. And I pray for the people who are listening. I pray that their hearts are open and their ears are open. Um, and I pray that we all learn something today. Amen. Um, okay, so back in spring 2017, I boarded a plane at Newark International Airport headed to Ben Gurion Airport in Israel for a reporting trip with my graduate program. So beyond my educational and career pursuits, I was super excited because it's the Holy Land, um, the birthplace of my Christian faith. I get to see some sights, maybe walk down some of Jesus' old stomping grounds, <laughs> maybe catch the spirit like Pentecost. Um, <laughs> it was a 10-hour flight, and I was ready to go to sleep with my pillow, and that blue scarf um, over um, there it is, yeah. Um, I was like, goodbye, New York, I love you. Um, <laughs> and then I was wearing that scarf. That's my friend Joy. Um, and when we got to Ben Gurion, um, I was ready with my American passport in hand, so confident that I was gonna get through with no troubles whatsoever. Anyway, um, when I get to the 
in front of the customs officer, things start to get a little dicey, right? So the officer looks at me and he looks at my passport and he's like, Allah who? How do you say it? I say Allah B. Um, he says, what are you doing here? I say, I'm a journalist here for a reporting trip with my graduate program. He points to my head and says, what is that scarf on your head? I slowly touch my head and I'm like, oh, it's, it's just a scarf. I'm starting to see that the scarf is be posing a problem, right? Um, he says, are you a Muslim? I think my jaw like fell on the floor, um, but I managed to answer truthfully, no, I'm not. Um, are you here to see religious sites? No, I'm here on a reporting trip. I was beginning to feel defeated. What is your religion, he says. I'm a Christian. I was in shock that I actually had to answer a question like that. Definitely not in the States anymore. This would never fly in America. <laughs> Except it totally does. Like, Muslims entering the U.S. are routinely questioned and detained in a similar manner. And the ACLU actually filed a lawsuit last year um, against the U.S. Border Control about it. So just keep that in mind. Um, and what you should know, actually, is that I'm Yoruba from the Yoruba people in West Africa. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> my family on both sides of my lineage, they've been Christians for the better part of the last century and a half, um, pretty much since the British started colonizing us. Um, so back at the airport in Ben-Gurion, the questions are getting more interesting, right? What is your father's name? What does he do? <laughs> what is your grandfather's name? What did he do? Are you Muslim? Why are you here? And so forth and so on. They weren't believing my story. A black woman with a last name that sounds like Allah, who was wearing a scarf on her head and claimed to be Christian, but was not in Israel for a religious pilgrimage and was there on a reporting trip? Mm-mm. Guilty. My very first and personal experience with Islamophobia was in the birthplace of Christianity, the Holy Land. And I'm not a Muslim. I'm not the first person with, who's not a Muslim and not associated with Islam to have that experience. There's this misconception that all Palestinians are Muslim and the presence of Palestinian Christians who have no doubt been there since Pentecost pretty much um, complicates this binary that we have of Jews versus Muslims. They, there are Palestinians who are Christians, there are Palestinians who are Jewish, there are Palestinians who are, um, who, who are currently suffering the Holy Land. So this moment at the airport was like a skirt, pause, timeout. I'm from a whole other part of the world, right? Like, I was like, this conflict ain't got jack to do with me. Like, why am I being criminalized for this, for having a Yoruba name that sounds Arabic? Um, <laughs> but here's the thing, though. Um, I live and I pay taxes here in the U.S., the greatest superpower the world has ever known that has very severe and shady interests in that region of the world. So, of course, it has something to do with me, right? And I have an inkling that it might also have something to do with you and all of us as progressive Christians. So let's take a look at some scriptures that may have informed some of our ideas around this ongoing land dispute between Israel and Palestine and the, and the Arab world. Um, if we go back several thousand years, maybe four or 5,000 years, um, um, the story of Hagar and Ishmael um, in the Old Testament in Genesis 17, 16, 17, 21, um, Abraham's wife, Sarah, was initially unable to bear children, and so she gave Abraham, her slave, um, Hagar, to conceive an heir. And this, by the way, Hagar did not consent to this, all right? 
um, Ishmael was born and brought up in Abram's house. Um, a while later, Sarah miraculously gets pregnant with Isaac at 90 years old. Um, she must have had really bad back problems, honestly. Um, that was the covenant that God initially promised to, to Abraham. Um, Isaac becomes Abraham's sole heir. Ishmael and Agar were banished to the desert. Um, but God gave Ishmael a promise that he would also have a great nation and have his own land and all that stuff. Um, so Ishmael is commonly regarded by both Jews and Arabs as a progenitor of the Arabic people. Um, while Isaac is commonly regarded as a progenitor of the Jewish people, so there's a divide between children of the promise and children of the flesh, Ishmael's lineage. But a few thousand years later, Jesus, this Palestinian Jew um, from Bethlehem, shows up and he calls himself the Messiah, and that he's here to save the world, and then he's brutally murdered by the state, and or he freely sacrifices himself for mankind, both and, yes and. Um, and then a few decades later, Apostle Paul shows up and he calls himself the, the, um, the minister to the Gentiles and he was writing this letter to the Galatians, the church in Galatians, and he's like, I heard somebody was trying to make you all feel secure about your identity in Christ, but let me tell you, okay? So here's the deal. Um, um, it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and the other by a free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh. His son by the free woman was born as a result of divine promise. These things are to be taken allegorically. It's figurative, okay? The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai, the other, um, and bears children and slaves. I'm just gonna skip, um, and then he goes, verse 28 of Galatians 4 um, says, now you brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of the promise. So in his letter, Paul is like, all of y'all, this is my drunk history version. All y'all, <laughs> y'all are now children of Isaac's promise through Christ. So Paul erases this slave-free divide through his understanding of scripture and interpretation of the Old Testament um, because of the sacrifice that Jesus, this Palestinian Jew, made. So what does this mean for us today as progressive Christians, as Americans, as people who are deconstructing? Um, I asked my mom, um, what she thought of this whole war in Gaza, and she said she doesn't like it. She doesn't like what the what Israel is doing to the people in Gaza, um, but she thinks that the Bible gives Israel permission to do what it's doing. So I had to go digging, and my question was, as a Christian, do I have a theological mandate to support the Israeli government's war against the people of Gaza? I like that resonating sound, yes, ooh. Uh, um, so the churches that I grew up in um, always encouraged me to um, support the state of Israel, and they would use that scripture, Hagar and Sarah, and that, that whole part of the, the Bible as a way to establish that Israel has a right to the land, um, that land between the Mediterranean Sea and the River Jordan. There's a slide of that. Can, can you show that slide? All right, so it's a really tiny piece of land. Um, it's the, the size of New Jersey, basically. And um, I don't have a lot of time to explain what it, but that's what it looks like, the West Bank, and Gaza is that little tiny piece over there. Um, so it's a small piece of land, so just remember that. Um, but we just read the scripture, right, that said, the promise isn't only for the Jews, right? 
You, brothers and sisters, siblings, Gentiles, all of you are just as special as Isaac. You and I, everybody in this room, were also children of the promise. So knowing this and owning this, what should our posture be as progressive Christians toward this land dispute um, and the ongoing suffering of people all over that land and the very present suffering of people in Gaza? So maybe it starts with modern history. How did we get to this conflict? Um, while I was trying to make sense of all of this, I relearned some terms, some history that I would like to share with you. Um, I, I learned two big words, Zionism and eschatology. <laughs> um, Pastor Josh was like, you should say that on a date to like impress people. <laughs> um, so um, there was a secular American Jewish journalist in Austria, and um, he lived between um, 1860 and 1904. He was looking at the ways that brutality of European anti-Semitism was happening, and he was like, I'm not really liking this, this is really sus. Um, and he was, he was, um, he started openly talking about why he believes Jewish people need their own country. Um, and this idea really became a movement around 1896. There's an explainer by Vox that explains like what Zionism is. I don't have time to get into it, but it's basically this idea that um, Jewish people deserve their own state. Uh, there's, and shout out to Kainu for providing me the, with this history. There's a Palestinian PhD student from Nazareth. Um, his name is Amir Marshi, and he's writing a, an op-ed about this. And um, he's doing research that actually suggests that um, Zionism, the, the ideas for Zionism originated via these white men, these Christian men who pre-millennialists, a lot of like theological words. Um, they were like OD obsessed with the end times, right? Um, they were like, interpret scripture literally using, using the book of Daniel and Revelations, they come up with this idea that Jews by themselves are within God's plan and that Jesus would only come back if Jewish people were back in Palestine. And so thereby speeding up the end of times, right? Um, and so that's their eschatology. Um, this theology really took root in America and if you've heard um, any Christians talking about the end times, get saved, Jesus is coming, that has its roots in Zionism. Um, there are the same folks that are like, let's just ruin the environment because you know Jesus is coming back anyway. He's gonna fix everything, right? So we don't need to worry about it. It's a very fatalistic worldview. If you've ever been terrified of the rapture, like I was like, as a kid, that theology has its roots in Zionism. Um, people like Pat Robertson, Benny Hinn, TV evangelists, that elk of people. Um, so if we go back to, I, I don't want to get down the rabbit hole there, but let's go back to the mid 20th century. A number of geopolitical things are happening in the world. There's World War II is happening. Um, the Holocaust is like really horrifying genocide of the Jewish people in Europe. The British are colonizing the Middle East. They were doing this thing called the scramble for Palestine. Where else have you heard that? Scramble for Africa. Yeah, um, they start pitting the Jews and the Palestinians against each other, good old divide and conquer, just like they did in my part of the world in West Africa. And they make a deal with Zionists, they're like, we'll give you Palestine. Good? Good. Um, so then we have a bunch of European um, Jews flee Palestine, they flee Europe to Palestine during the second, after, during and after the Second World War, and Israel declares its independence on May 15, 1948. This triggers the first Arab-Israeli war, so, 
while Israelis call it Independence Day, Palestinians, they call it the Nakba, which means catastrophe, um, because 700,000 Palestinians are basically kicked out of their homes, they lose access to their villages, their land, their homes, and they are exiled to places like Lebanon, Syria, and surrounding countries. A bunch of them move to Gaza. Um, so, so just to, <laughs> I want you to pause. I know I've said a lot of very historical things right now, but the picture you should have in your head is a bunch of mostly white Europeans, right? Exile and massacre a bunch of mostly brown folks from the land and the, that they've lived on for generations using scripture, right? Um, where else have we seen this? Yeah? Okay. Um, so I, as I was preparing for this, I listened to this podcast um, called Inverse Podcast, and this person, Dr. Munther Isaac, he's a Palestinian Christ Christian theologian, he says, the land was never empty, right? And the notion that it was typifies a colonial ideology, right? And we did land acknowledgments earlier, Lenape land, we're on Lenape land. Same thing happened to the natives who lived, the Native Americans who lived on this land before the Dutch and British and all of them came over. Um, the atrocities of manifest destiny were justified using the Bible. And um, Dr. Munther Isaac basically says that the same thing. Um, and so too is the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, right? So this current war with people who are currently being displaced in Gaza, many of them are the same ones who were exiled back in 1948. One of my friends, um, Noor, she's a Palestinian-American who was on the Israel trip with me in 2017. Her grandmother was actually exiled in, in, in 1948. She experienced it, and she tells her children the story of ha having to like hide in bunkers and things like that, just stay alive. This was like a really, a very real thing that families remember very deeply. Um, and in all, all the Israeli side of things, um, it's almost like they end up recreating the very trauma that many of them were fleeing Europe for. Um, this newly liberated people become the oppressor while they were seeking to do everything in their power to ensure the horrors they experience don't happen to them again, right? Um, so I was talking to my therapist about this. <laughs> and shout out to P, I'm not gonna tell you her full name because privacy. Um, <laughs> But she, she reminded me that if, if you don't deal with your, and heal your own trauma, you most likely will end up traumatizing other people. You know, like hurt people hurt people. So if we fast forward, we're in present day. We have a bunch of traumatized people who are living on this teeny, teeny piece of land, right? There's no space. No one has space to breathe, right? Bombs are going off left and right. Um, but Palestinians are now a dispossessed group of people. They have no freedom of movement on this land, no free access to water. Um, and for those of us who love to travel, that means, imagine living in a country where you don't have a passport, you have no citizenship, you can't go home to see your family if, you're, if you live abroad, your family can't come to see you. And if we zoom out of Gaza, all over the land, we see that life in the West Bank is very restrictive for Palestinians as well. Um, there's a lot of like, checkpoints and stuff, and the UN actually reports that there are women who sometimes end up giving birth at the, check, at the Israeli checkpoints because it takes so long uh, and they can't get to a hospital. 
Right now, there are less than 1,000 Christians in Gaza, and the way this war is going, there may not be any left. So we're gonna be in a situation where Christians don't exist anymore in that, in that part of the country or the world. If they read the, the, the land of all the Palestinians, there'll be no more Christians in the birthplace of Christianity. So, some questions to consider. Maybe it's possible to both be victim and perpetrator, right? Maybe we need to get away from this binary where Palestinians are horrible people and the Israeli government is good. What would it look like for Palestinian lives to be weighed as equally as Israeli lives? So I mentioned Dr. Munther earlier, um, where he stands, he says, it seems Christian leaders are okay with the state of things. Everyone is satisfied to say Israel has a right to defend itself. And there's this lack of interest in, quote, judging Israel. Nobody wants to judge Israel, right? So Dr. Munther would say that what he said, actually, when I was listening to him, was like, peacemaking is not neutrality. Peacemaking is not standing in the middle and praying for both sides and listening to both sides. God absolutely takes a side, right? The prophets in the scriptures let us know that God is always on the side of the oppressed. Jesus himself was the victim of the very same violence of empire and religious extremism. The son of God was a victim of empire. God is forever siding with the underdog, always. So for the Palestinian Christians, none of what I'm talking about today is an abstraction. Here at Forefront, we say that we are ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity. It's a very lofty idea. And we believe the politics of Jesus are part of that ushering in. Forefront is very political, but we're not partisan. On this particular issue, Forefront hasn't taken an official stance yet, but I'm giving the sermon today because I personally, I can't be silent. Now, we have to remember that anti-Semitism is real. Islamophobia is real. We have to ground ourselves in those realities. We have to hold on to those facts very strongly. Antisemitism anti and Islamophobia have spiked here in the US since October 7th. If you've been looking at the news, it's, it's really horrifying. However, there's also an attempt to silence anyone who is remotely critical of the Israeli government as anti-Semitic. People are being doxxed, losing their livelihoods. But a distinction needs to be made here that being critical of Zionism and of what the Israeli government is doing to Gazans and Palestinians is not the same as hating Jewish people. The same way that I can be critical of the US government, and that doesn't mean I'm anti-American. Naturally, I care about America. Like, I want you to be better. I want you to do better, right? So. Josh had this um, last week, this quote about how all of our oppressions are tied together, right? So an example of that is the fact that the, the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF, actually trains the NYPD, right? Um, Brett, I didn't know that. Kelly let me know that, and I was like, whoa, that's crazy. Um, the, the, the IDF trains police forces around the world, and they export their technology and their techniques to places all over the world. Um, and so the NYPD is using the tactics of like mass surveillance, racial profiling, suppression of protests, all that stuff. They, they learned some of that stuff from, from, the, from, the, from, from the Israeli Defense Forces over there. Um, but also another 
parallel, Hitler and the Nazi regime, they, some of their tactics, some of their legal tactics, they, they learned from Jim Crow. So all these things are like interwoven, right? They're all, they're all, all part of the same horrible family. Um, so I, I want you all to just, just remember, remember that all these things have to do with each other. Um, at the end of my 10-day reporting trip to Israel, my teacher, um, who was the director of my graduate program, accused me of anti-Semitism and threatened to, quote, influence my career with an email. She carried out that threat, um, called me an angry black woman to the editor-in-chief of, um, of my internship, and <laughs> which is another sermon for another time. Um, <laughs> and I walked away from that experience feeling silenced. I got really ill, I got strep throat. My very first experience with strep was at age 27. Um, people usually get it in childhood, so it was really weird. Um, looking back at it, I really believe that that illness was a physical manifestation of how I felt of not being able to use my voice the way it was meant to be used. And I know this discourse around this conflict um, with Israel and Palestine has felt so weighty and definitely not gonna lie that I've been afraid to share the sermon and that it, it'll come back to me negatively. But I take joy and comfort in the fact that the pro through the process of writing this sermon, um, it's been so cathartic for me physically. Uh, I've been checking and doing a lot of check-ins and being like, am I okay? Yes, I'm good. So you should speak up because you will actually, it, you will feel better um, because your silence might actually make you sick physically. You should do some research. I have all the resources and stuff that I use here. I'll um, send it to you. Um, if you just flag me down after service now, I can email it to you. And there's that event on December 10th that Josh plugged earlier. Um, sign up if there's still spaces left. There are other genocides happening around the world. There's one in the Congo, Syria. We've never stopped killing each other for crazy reasons. Um, educate yourself on those two. Remember that you are an heir to Abram's promise. Remember that song that we used to sing, Abram's blessings are mine? Yes, that's you, that's me, that's all of us. Um, the earth is your inheritance. Take care of its people. I'm gonna close in prayer, join me. Um, so thank you, Lord, for your promise. Thank you that you stand with the oppressed and the marginalized and the dispossessed. Thank you that you came to the world, Jesus, to give us life and life more abundantly. And I pray that we remember that we are all children of God and that we are loved. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, 
visit ForefrontChurch.com.